Hello and welcome to A Chat with Anat. I'm your host, Professor Anat Lowenstein. In this podcast series, I'm joined by internationally renowned colleagues to discuss key topics of interest in enhancing the care and optimizing the treatment of our patients with neovascular macular degeneration, NAMD for short. Today, I am very fortunate to be joined by Professor Tarika Slam to chat about managing patients with anxiety and depression while treating their neovascular macular degeneration in our busy clinics. Tarik is a professor of ophthalmology and interface technologies at the University of Manchester and a consultant ophthalmology specializing in the management of retinal disease, including macular degeneration. He is also a fellow member of the Barometer Program's Global Leadership Coalition. Tariq, welcome. Thank you very much for that introduction, Anat, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here for a chat with Anat. Thank you, Tariq. In this episode, Tariq and I will be chatting about the importance of considering anxiety and depression when managing our patients with new vascular macular degeneration, particularly as risk factors for non-adherence to and non-persistence with treatment. We will explain how you can identify and support your patients with anxiety and depression and discuss the psychological impact of different treatment strategies which are used for the management of neovascular macular degeneration. Okay, Tariq, so let's start with the reasons ophthalmologists should consider anxiety and depression when treating patients with neovascular AMD. In your experience, do you see a high prevalence of these anxiety and depression in people with neovascular macular degeneration as compared to the general population? And how do these conditions manifest so that we can identify them? Thank you, Annette. Well. I actually was studying a completely different field when all of this came to my mind. I was looking at uh, things like image processing and analysis. And I had a patient who was part of a wider study. She actually did well with her visual acuity and I expected her to be very grateful for all the treatment she's had. But just as part of the research study she was on, we also gave a little questionnaire to ask about quality of life. And it was only through this that it came to pass that we realized that she had actually got a really high level of clinical depression. And this was a real shock to me. And I was disappointed in myself because this was a lady who I'd known for a few years, who I'd see every few months. And she would come in and uh, smile and joke with me and ask me about my family. And I was shocked that this could have been going on and that I'd missed this. And so this led me to do some wider research in my other patients. And we conducted a study called a poppy study. And we actually found that in our whole patient group, there were around uh, 17% that actually had clinical levels of anxiety and 12% that had depression. And this was all clinical characteristics that had been previously undiagnosed and they weren't getting treatment for. So initially, I thought, is this something to do with my patients? Am I doing something wrong? And this led me to look more widely. But actually, this is repeated in literature, uh, not just in Manchester or the UK, but all over the world. So Simaroli et al. For, for one has looked at increased rate of depressive symptoms. Weinstein looked at and found increased rate of anxiety in patients. And really, this is a problem across the whole board. So this is a problem not just in 
my patients, actually not just in neovascular AMD, but globally and in patients with, with vision loss. I was actually really surprised by your findings because I didn't realize that it is so prevalent in patients with macular degeneration. Even though it does make sense that it would be, I never actually looked at it in a meticulous enough manner. So, you know, I, I think this is something that all of us retina specialists should be aware of. First of all, because we want the patients with a holistic approach to feel well, but also be, because it can impede the results of their treatment because of non-compliance to the treatment in these situations. Yeah, exactly the same as you. And that's, I only came to my mind accidentally, like I said, from trial studies. Okay, great. So uh, great that we know about it. Great that we need to think about it. And I would like next to talk with you about the key factors that can actually lead to such anxiety and depression in our patients. Maybe you can give some examples from your experience and from the literature regarding the risk factor for these situations. Yeah, and one of the challenges of dealing with this issue is that it's not a simple issue, it's multifactorial. There are lots and lots of different things that can be associated with the anxiety and depression. So normally we would think of, for example, the loss of their functional capacity, merely that their vision is down and that leads to issues, but it's compounded because when this happens in younger patients, sometimes they can figure out ways of getting around the issue, but there's a reduction in problem-solving skills uh, when you're older, and so that compounds the initial problem. A lot of patients feel that there's a massive loss of control over their life and environment. They think things are impending, and they have no ability to counteract it, and quite often it's a long-term outlook that they are fearful of. Then there are issues around medical management that some people have around actually having the injections and the needles, having to have all the visits, the impact on their providers. They feel a burden to sometimes they're passing on a burden to the people who are coming with us. So those are the major groups, but then there are always new papers coming out in terms of other factors that may add. Recently, there's been a paper actually which indicated that there's a lack of sleep, either just before the injection or just after the injection, that then causes a cycle which also affects levels of anxiety and depression. So it's complicated and multifactorial. Yeah, absolutely. I think everything that you mentioned now is so important and so worth thinking about if we really want to manage our patients in the right manner. So unfortunately, as we are both aware, patients' mental health needs are often unaddressed during ophthalmological care in a basic clinic. You know, today, until now, I saw 40 patients. So I was hardly able to see their OCTs and decide what they need to get next, let alone talk about their, you know, anxiety and things like that. Unfortunately, it does affect the outcome. So can you elaborate a little bit on how anxiety and depression affect the overall outcome in patients that are receiving the proper anti-VEGF therapy? Well, I'm with you completely in that. You know, I, we have similarly very busy clinics. And my first instinct is we don't need something else now to, to think about or to worry about. But the reason why it's important is mental health issues are becoming increasingly recognized as a really important burden to try and address in general across the whole of medicine, even just for the sake of the well-being of the patient themselves. But anxiety and depression are risk factors also for treatment non-adherence and non-persistence. And we see that becoming an issue in most of the real world studies as time goes on. 
It's associated with lower physical activity and poor diet. And these sorts of behavioral effects then lead to poor outcomes in other chronic medical diseases such as diabetes. So for those reasons, the patient well-being is something I think that we need to prioritize uh, more than we have previously. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So let's think, I know that it's, you know, it's a very, very big challenge, but uh, now we have this knowledge, thanks to you pointing it out to us. And with this knowledge, what are the steps that you take in your clinic to identify and to support patients that do experience this anxiety and depression so we can all learn from it? So my approach was, really think about this from the patient's perspective. And one of the first things I did was to look and really, we had questionnaires and open-ended questionnaires asking patients what the sources were for their anxiety and their stress. And then we that led us to improve the patient information that we're giving to them. Because prior to this, we were giving them information that we thought they needed rather than information that they are actually asking us for. And we try and make a point now of giving this improved patient information sheet a bit more regularly. So it's not just for the first time, but, you know, late, much later on as well to make sure they understand all these issues. Then what I try and do is to rather than ask the doctor to talk to patients at length at every visit, which is impossible, we have a really short screening questionnaire. It's only four questions and that screens for both anxiety and depression. It's highly sensitive but not particularly specific. So what we do is if they answer positive to those questionnaires, we then give them much more accurate questionnaires, which are longer. Now, these are really uh, small single pieces of paper, which they can go away and they can do on their own. And we've tested them and found that they can do them on their own. And when we've done it in clinic, it doesn't slow the clinic down and it doesn't cause issues with doctors or patients. So these are effective tools and they seem to bring up not too many patients, but the right patients to our attention that we can then try and deal with. Yeah, I think it's a very good method and uh, I'm really in favor of adopting it in my clinic. I think that, you know, it's it's kind of sometimes you don't want to start to deal with something because if you don't deal with it, it doesn't exist. And if we'll start to deal with it, we might have uh, unpleasant surprises, but I think it's the only way. And I would really uh, like to adopt your small questionnaire and the patients can do while they're waiting and so forth. And I think that even the mere performance of the questionnaire can be already helpful for the patients. So let's say you identified already an anxiety and depression in a patient with AMD. So what are the further steps that you are taking to support him? Yeah, and that's exactly the anxiety I had when I was started doing this. What happens if I give this questionnaire and people come back as positive? Well, just to reassure people, with these questionnaires, a relatively small percentage actually show any issues at all. So we've tried them out and less than 10% or so actually come up as something. But those that do come up, we've created another template to allow us as ophthalmologists, because we're not trained as psychologists, but another template that allows us or guides us as to what we need to do. And all you need to do is add up the scores from the questionnaires and then follow this very easy to use template, which guides you through inquiring up to patients if it's their eye condition or its management is contributing to how they're feeling, discussing some of the potential ophthalmic related causes of distress, such as discomfort or, or appointments or, or need for more information 
making you remember to think about maximizing patients' vision through low vision appointments, for example, or, or registration, which we have in the UK. And then at a higher level, if they score at a particular level, then thinking about uh, whether patient needs to be referred to their general practitioners. And these are also a really sort of simple guide that is a little tick box, basically, which shouldn't take too long to go through, but hopefully will make a bigger impact on patients. And uh, there is another section right at the end if patients are really severe problems, which we've not found yet, that if there's any issues of self-harm, there needs to be a number for you to be able to call just in case those fears are realized. But overall, I think what this template does is take away some of the anxieties we might have as well as hopefully taking away the anxieties of the patients. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, all of these are very, very important steps. Can you give us it? I mean, I, I definitely learned from uh, your, your experience and I will definitely implement it in my clinic. But do you think, is there any way to implement your approach in more clinic? How, I mean, just as a wider advice, uh, how do you think that uh, people should implement it in their clinic uh, on a wider scale. I guess my objective from this avenue of research is to maybe get some ophthalmologist thinking a little bit more about the general patient. Even myself, it's been helpful to me to remember that it's not just about the scans and optimizing their vision, but also thinking about the patient as a whole. And if this is just a reminder to ophthalmologists about that, I will have succeeded. Yeah. To remember also that this doesn't necessarily need to be those patients that come in and are looking miserable or unhappy. These might be patients like my first patient who actually had good visual acuity and she was more worried about the long-term impact. She was desperately anxious about losing her driving vision. So she had good vision and she was coping well, but she had those particular fears. And overall, just recognizing the patient as a whole person and not focusing solely on their eye disease when we consider all the protocols and interventions that we now have to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think that uh, every one of us, if you ask every retina specialist, every ophthalmologist will tell you that he doesn't think that you need to look all, only on the eye, but rather on the patient as a whole. But when you come to, to actually exercising it on a patient, it's a little more difficult. Anyway, through our work with the Barometer Program, Tariq and I are part of a team which develops discussion guides to help facilitate these important conversations between doctors treating neovascular macular degeneration and their patients, and including this very easy five-point checklist for mental health. So I think this can be very helpful and to check out these useful tools that can help you to better support your patients in busy clinics please follow the link to the Neovascular AMD Barometer website in this episode's uh, show notes, because I think that there you can actually identify with these few questions, uh, you can identify the problem in many patients. You can already give them a better feeling because already someone is looking at them. And then if, if there is someone going in this path, you can identify him and try to help him or at least refer him for the appropriate help. It's been a very interesting chat um, and we come now to a close. So would you like to give us one key take-home message for the listeners about considering anxiety and depression during the treatment of macular degeneration? So my take-home is really that I'm a clinician and I have very busy clinics. 
if I could ask for one thing, it's to try and encourage people that even though they need to study the scans, please try and remember the patient behind it. <laughs> of course. So with this uh, happy note, since that's all what we have time for today, I would like to thank my very special guest that looked at the, the disease that we are treating every day from a slightly different angle, which is so, so important. Thank you, Professor Tariq Aslam. That was really, really great. Thank you very much for the chat, Anat. I also like to thank everyone for listening. Please follow or subscribe and listen to my previous podcast episodes, which cover topics such as how having a better understanding of our patients' perspectives can help optimize the treatment adherence, visual outcome, and overall well-being. And a brief history of treatment for neovascular macular degenerations through the 21st century. And also look out for future podcast episodes coming soon. And thank you again very much for listening. Bye-bye.